Hi, I'm Manika Raman-Wilms, and you're listening to The Decibel from The Globe and Mail. A next-generation space telescope designed to cause yet another giant leap forward in our understanding of the cosmos. It will carry some of the most advanced technologies ever placed on an orbiting observatory. No, that's not a trailer for a sci-fi movie. That's the video NASA made to hype its new telescope. And in some ways, the James Webb Space Telescope is a bit of a blockbuster. It took more than 20 years to build, cost over $10 billion, and is currently sitting well past the moon, more than a million kilometers away from the Earth. This eye in the sky is a very big deal. And it promises big things, too. Like the Hubble telescope, the James Webb could unlock a number of mysteries in the universe. How common is life in the universe? You know, where would be the next closest planet with life to this one? You know, a major burning question. It's one that really we haven't had the tools to be able to answer until our own lifetime. The Globe science reporter, Ivan Semenik, has been reporting on this project for decades, and he recently watched the telescope launch into space on Christmas Day. And we have engine start. And liftoff. Decollage, liftoff from a tropical rainforest to the edge of time itself. James Webb begins a voyage back to the birth of the universe. Now the telescope is safely where it should be, and Ivan is going to tell us about how it works and how Canada is playing a crucial role. This is The Decibel. Ivan, thanks so much for chatting with us today. Well, I have to tell you, it is really exciting for me to be talking about this instrument because uh, I've been reporting on science and especially astronomy and space science for over two decades. And right at the beginning of my journalism career, this telescope was on the drawing board and being talked about. So it is quite remarkable to kind of have followed it through its uh, this long gestation period uh, and a lot of the obstacles along the way to, to get it where it is. Mm. And to actually, you know, it's a, so far has been a, a tremendous success story, although there certainly have been hurdles along the way. Yeah, this is this is really interesting. So this telescope is now out in space. Can you tell us what it looks like? What it looks like, I find interesting and perhaps appropriate because, you know, this is maybe the first space telescope that can give us some sense of uh, what alien worlds are like as one of the things it could do. Uh, and in some ways, it's the most alien looking uh, contraption uh, people have ever put up in space. You know, it has a sort of insect-like look to it. So it looks rather like an alien piece of hardware. Uh, instead of your classic kind of floating tin can, uh, which is what the Hubble Space Telescope looks like. You know, I mean, a telescope is basically a giant mirror that collects and focuses light from distant objects. So that's what telescopes look like on Earth. And in a sense, when they launched the Hubble back in 1990, that's what they put up, a tin can in space. So... To go larger than that, 
uh, you need a very different type of design or a different type of concept because the problem with the tin can approach is it can only be as big as the rocket that launches it. So the concept right from the start with the Webb telescope, the James Webb Space Telescope, and when it started, it was just called the Next Generation Space Telescope, uh, was to like have... Like Star Trek? <laughs> well, it, which was contemporary at the time. That's how far back this goes. So, uh, you know, was to have the mirror, instead of having the mirror in one solid piece of glass... Uh, to have a segmented mirror. So you, you sort of have separate sheets of glass, in this case, 18 uh, segments. And then those would unfold to give you this kind of honeycomb shape. Uh, mm -hmm. And instead of having a, a can around it, you know, the mirror would just kind of be open to space, but you would protect it behind a sun shield, uh, which is about the size of a tennis court. Wow. Because it, the mirrors are in segments, it could all be folded up. And then that whole folded uh, apparatus uh, packed inside an Ariane rocket. And from there, it can start to uh, pick up those faint infrared rays from outer space. So the mirror <laughs> looks different. It's observing in different wavelengths. It's mainly looking in the infrared part. So it's looking at longer wavelengths than the human eye can see. Uh, and, it's, and it's in permanent darkness far away. You use the word honeycomb at one point there, and seeing pictures of it, it does kind of look like that because it's all kind of this this gold color. Is that actual gold, or is that just painted that way for a reason? No, there's real gold. I think there's beryllium too. There's there's really yeah. There's some some real gold in there, and uh, you know basically they're looking for a surface that has the least loss of signal uh, for the wavelengths that they're most uh, interested in, the wavelengths that they're most sensitive to. So in a sense, it's, it's sort of alien in that way too. It's kind of moving, moving our view, in this case, to a longer wavelength, uh, which turns out to be exactly what you need for the kind of uh, astronomical questions that are current now. Hmm. So, Ivan, it sounds like this this is a, a very new design. Um, this, there's, it, we're thinking this telescope can do a lot then. What do we think we'll be able to, to learn from it? Well, a lot of it has to do with the fact that it's an infrared telescope. So this really offers an opportunity to see the universe in a range that uh, we just can't access, not only with our eyes, but, uh, you know, on Earth, even if you set up an infrared telescope of the equivalent size on Earth, you wouldn't be able to see it in, in part because the gases of our atmosphere are quite, uh, especially water vapor, are quite efficient at uh, emitting infrared. So, so in a sense, if you had the James Webb Space Telescope sitting on the ground on a mountaintop somewhere, it would just be looking through a fog, uh, which is our atmosphere. Ivan, can you just remind me what infrared is? Sure. Infrared light? So, you know, light is, most people are familiar with the idea that light is in a spectrum. It's, it's what we see when we see the rainbow, you know, sort of red, orange, yellow, green, blue, violet, you know, those are the colors of light, uh, and they're associated with different wavelengths of light. Those colors are the colors that our eyes can see. That's the optical part of the spectrum. But even though the eye stops working once you get past, you know, the red on one end and the violet on the other end, uh, we know that energy can be emitted at those wavelengths even though our eyes can't perceive it. So beyond violet, there's ultraviolet. Those are shorter wavelengths of light than our eyes can detect. At the other end, you have infrared, which is sort of below the red. These are longer wavelengths of light 
uh, and it keeps going. Uh, the interesting thing is the you know the wavelengths of light are also associated with energy. You know, higher wavelengths are higher energy. They tend to be emitted by hotter objects. Lower wavelengths tend to be emitted by cooler objects. So that means as you're going past the red into the infrared, you're looking at cooler and cooler parts of the universe, which is very important. Uh, with infrared, you can start to see the environments around the stars. If there are clouds of dust, if there if there are new new stars forming uh, in dust clouds, for example you can perceive what's happening in those dust clouds much more easily. Uh, and also, if you're looking at planets orbiting around stars, looking at their you know, characteristics, it's much, much uh, more useful to look in the infrared. That's one way it's useful. There's a second very important way as well, which has to do with the idea that the universe is expanding. This is something we've known for about 100 years now. And if you think of the Doppler shift, you know, the thing where uh, you can hear it with sound, you know, where, where if a car passes you or a siren passes you and goes, you know, as, right. it's, as it's passing you and starts to move away from you, the wavelengths of sound get stretched out. Something similar happens with light. As something's moving away from you, the light gets stretched out. So all of the light shifts to longer wavelengths. And as you start to look really far away, the light of those distant galaxies is stretched so much that really the best way to look at them is in the, in the infrared. So by having a telescope that's so sensitive to infrared light, you are also buying yourself distance. You can look deeper into the universe to the point where uh, you know more of the important uh, energy uh, from these very, very distant objects is now going to appear in the infrared part of the spectrum. Wow. Okay. So there's, there's a, it's a really interesting concept there. So essentially this light is getting stretched. So we're looking back in, in time, I guess, when we're looking in, at infrared, is that fair to say? Also looking, exactly. Also looking back in time. So not only looking far away, which is great, but the fact that since light takes time to reach us from these distant objects, and in the case of the most distant galaxies, you know, we're looking back more than 10 billion light years, which means more than 10 billion years into the universe's past history. Uh, so yes, it also allows you to see the universe at earlier and earlier stages. So in fact, one of the exciting things uh, and one of the big expectations for James Webb is that this will really be the telescope that starts to unveil kind of the first assembly of galaxies, the fir you know, these, how, how matter sort of started to congregate to form the galaxies that we see today, including galaxies like the Milky Way in, in, in which we live. Wow, this is, this sounds huge. Like this could be really big then if we're actually finding stuff like this that we would have never been able to see, to see before. I think the hoped for payoff is that this will be a kind of a game changer in a generational way, uh, in a way that the Hubble was. You know, the Hubble really transformed optical astronomy. It was the first large space telescope to get up above Earth's atmosphere. There were big expectations, big projects that were planned. And, you know, more by and large, the Hubble fulfilled those. But even more interesting were the things that Hubble saw and found that weren't expected, or maybe not expected in quite the same way. And of course, the new questions that it opened up by being able to see the universe uh, more clearly, more sharply. So that's the hope with Webb too, not just the things that are planned, and many things are planned, but what will come out of it that no one saw coming.
Is there any chance that it's going to help us uh, answer the, the perennial question of if we're alone in the universe or not? It is one of the big questions. I, I, I feel like when you're uh, talking about astronomy, I mean, a lot of it has to do with how do things work, how do stars shine, how, you know, how, how are planets formed, all of those things, how do galaxies, uh, why do they have the shapes they do? These are kind of process you know, kind of the physics of, of what goes on on the large scale. But there are also the questions that are, in a sense, kind of existential to us. You know, how how big is the universe? How did we get here? Why is it like this and not some other way? Why do we live in a universe that allows life? And and finally, you know, how common is life in the universe? You know, where would be the next closest planet with life to this one? You know, a, a major burning question. It's one that Really, we haven't had the tools to be able to answer until our own lifetime. It, it amazes me to think that this is something people have pondered for centuries, and we're living in a time where it might be possible. Here's how. Uh, James Webb, using infrared, could perceive uh, light coming through the atmospheres of planets orbiting around other stars. You could start to actually... Uh, measure the composition of atmospheres of different stars. And, you know, that gives you a fingerprint that could tell you, okay, is, is there water vapor in the atmosphere, for example? Is there methane? Are there other kinds of molecules that we might associate with life? Are there molecules that are out of equilibrium where there's no physical way for that molecule to be there unless there's something alive on the planet? If you were looking at Earth in a way, you, you would have something similar because, uh, if you if you tried to measure Earth's atmosphere, of course you'd see it's mainly nitrogen, but you'd also see the oxygen in Earth's atmosphere. That oxygen wouldn't be there unless uh, unless we had all the plants on Earth that are growing on Earth. So you know that's an example where just measuring the composition of an atmosphere can give you clues to whether or not there's life, or at least whether it's possible. So we've talked about some of the big scientific research that this this telescope may may help us do, things that might help us find. How exactly will it work, though? You know, in order to get such a sharp view of the universe and to take advantage of the enormous size of all those mirrors put together, I mean, uh, you need uh, incredibly precise pointing, and the whole thing needs to keep steady. So uh, that's actually where Canada's contribution comes in. One of the instruments that Canada has built for the telescope is the fine guidance sensor. Uh, and basically what this does is uh, it has a piece of the telescope's field of view. Uh, it uses that to look at stars that are in the field, uh, and it very accurately keeps track of where those stars are. Uh, it needs at least three stars to sort of do this and uh, and make sure that the telescope isn't turning or kind of drifting off target. Because one of the issues with this is if you really want to take a, a good image of something that's very far away or very faint, you need time for the light to build up on your detector. So it's not like just taking a snapshot, click, here's the camera, now let's go look at something else. It could take hours. You have to just be pointing steadily so that there's no blur, basically, on the picture. And so the, the Canadian Fine Guidance Sensor is a key piece of the system that will make that happen. As uh, René Dion at the University of Montreal, who's, one, who's sort of the Canadian project scientist uh, for Webb, as he was saying to me, you know, there will be no picture that's not guided by Canadian eyes. 
to come out of web. So it's a very integral part of the system. There's also a second instrument Canada has built, uh, which goes along with the Find Guidance Sensor. It's called NERIS. I won't unpack the whole acronym, but basically it's a spectrograph. Again, it looks at different wavelengths in the infrared. That one will probably be especially useful and important for uh, some of this work involving looking at atmospheres of planets around other stars. So it's actually, it's really interesting that there's Canadian research behind this that's really crucial parts to this telescope. Uh, we've talked a little bit, I guess, about in, in general how this would work then, Ivan. Can you give us some examples of the kind of research that scientists are, are planning to do with this telescope then? It's really the distant universe where things start to get really interesting. Uh, there's another Canadian project that uh, highlights this where... Um, looking at the most remote galaxies possible. And to do that, what they start off by doing is finding some very large clusters of galaxies. So, you know, because there's so much matter there, they have tremendous gravity. And and so gravity has this special property where it bends light. It can actually redirect the path of light. You can use the gravity of a very large massive object in space to magnify the light of objects that are further away behind it. It's almost like you're using the gravity as a lens. So in a way, uh, what they're going to do is use the James Webb Telescope, look at these massive clusters of stars, of galaxies, use their gravity to magnify still further, like an extra lens, to try to pick up light from galaxies that are even further away and reach back to that first earliest era of galaxy formation in the universe. So I think that's, that's a, a project that uh, could yield some very interesting science. We've talked about this, this big project and, and all, these, all, all these things that we could really learn from this. As, as someone who's covered science uh, and space throughout your career, I guess, why is it important? Why do you think it's important for us to, to make these investments to, to study the skies? Obviously, there are very important priorities where science is needed to help guide public policy on health. I mean, we're seeing that with the pandemic, on the environment, which we're seeing very clearly with climate change. But I think the other area where science uh, is indispensable is helping us understand who we are and what we are and, uh, and what is this universe that we find ourselves in. It's still a mystery that we're here. And I think it's uh, part of the human condition to wonder about this. I think it sounds a bit cliche, but it, it is true, to, you know, that, that we're the product of generations of people who explored uh, the environment around them. And I think this is now an extension of that activity in this, in this era. Ivan, this was absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for this conversation. My pleasure. Looking forward to seeing some pictures later this year. That's it for today. I'm Manika Raman-Wilms. Our producers are Madeline White and Cheryl Sutherland. David Crosby edits the show. Kasia Mihailovich is our senior producer, and Angela Pachenza is our executive editor. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you tomorrow.